Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is your host, Blanche, and joining me today is a very familiar guest, Hall of Famer, writer, historian. You guys know him extremely well. This is our year-end 2023 tennis season of the men's side final recap, and it is the one and only Steve Flink. Steve, a pleasure to have you on here, as always. Glad to be back with you, Blanche. It's been a, it's been a great season. I'm looking forward to diving into it pretty deeply with you right now. Great, great year. Yeah, terrific year on the men's side, of course. Um, and we have to start with our world number one, Novak Djokovic, um, you know, becoming the year-end number one for the eighth time, record 400-plus weeks as as number one, uh, you know, winning in three majors again in a, in a season, capped by the ATV finals for the record seventh time, and just so many records. We could go on and on, Steve. But what, what are your first impressions about his season as a whole and kind of how he performed at the ATV finals as well as... Uh, his recent showing at the Davis Cup. I think he, all told, I think he's got to be delighted with with what he got out of this entire season because, as you know, Bach, he scheduled himself very carefully. Uh, it's, it's one thing to look back on early in the year when he had a missed Indian Wells in Miami because he, he was unvaccinated and didn't have a choice. But after that, I think he really wanted the breaks. He played a fair amount on clay, won the French Open, didn't play a warm-up for Wimbledon. Almost won Wimbledon again, loses to Alcaraz, and then he was careful over the summer to only play Cincinnati for the Open. He wins them both. So now to get back to your original point about the end of the year, he once again had a long break before Paris after the U.S. Open and one Davis Cup match the week after. So um, again, that was something of a gamble because ideally you'd play a bit more, but he felt he needed the rest, and he found a way to get through and win his seventh crown at the Paris Bercy event indoors, and then again, just a brief break and right on to Turin. And I felt like during the round robin, obviously he was consumed. He beat Runa there. That was very important because it sealed that that eighth year at number one year end. And and I think that may have thrown him a bit though too, because I think he that was his major mission was to get number one for the year to have that tucked away as soon as possible, and then maybe lost a bit of focus. Played well against the Stinner in the round robin, but lost that match in a third set tiebreak. So that meant that, you know, it was a bit dicey for him to even qualify for the semifinals in Turin, but he got there, he beat Urkaj, and then he got a, a break because Sinner was able to beat Holgaruna himself, and, and that enabled Djokovic to get into the semis. He peaked, I thought, for the semis and finals against Algaraz and Sinner back-to-back. Beats Algaraz 3-2, and two, beats Sinner 3-3. Three and three. It was really... A, a revelation to see that after how so many three setters of both Paris and Turing during the week in the round robin. So I think once again, it was another mission 
realize, another dream realized to get this title for the seventh time and have that as almost icy on the cake beyond finishing the year number one. But then he had that unfinished business of Davis Cup, only a few days off. So it was a very congested late season for Novak, Vaj, as you know. Uh, it was asking a lot of himself. Winning Paris put him in the driver's seat to seal that number one ranking. Then he gets that he seals it over Aruna in the round robin, then loses a match, but comes back and wins the title. But there's still more work to be done. So, because he really, in the back, as he said later, the back of his mind was always the Davis Cup because he's only won it once before. And I think he wanted to share that with his teammates. And I think he was really up for doing it again this year. And it looked pretty good against Cam Dory in the quarterfinal round and won that match comfortably in straight sets. And then, of course, it suffered what was probably the one of the more shocking losses of his career just in the in the manner of it, not the fact that it was Sinner, but it was a fascinating match, as you know, Bunch. You know, they split 6-2 sets, 6-2 for Sinner, blasted Novak. He just sort of out-hit him, overpowered him in that first set and caught him a bit off guard, and then Novak turned the corner early in the second, got the early break on a wild Sinner double fault, and then got the insurance break late and was able to start serving in the third. And this is what made this match so uh, uncommon, such an unusual uh, series of events for Djokovic, who's a great front runner, and he had uh, so many chances in the third set. You know, a long seven deuce game he doesn't break in the second game, and later had a deuce game on center serve, and then after that a four three another break point, and center served his way out of it beautifully, and finally it came to that crucial moment with center serving at four five love forty triple match point down, and this was. Had never happened to Djokovic in his career. He had lost matches having had match points, but not triple match point in this situation. With Serbia, if he wins one of those points, automatically in the finals, playing against Australia too. So there was so much riding on it. And I thought he got a little bit tight. You know, the first match point bunch, he had a routine back end. He'd made a good return off a second serve. He was in a neutral rally and suddenly inexplicably the ball that center didn't hit that deep or that hard Novak uh, went for the slice back in and in a similar situation in the round robin in turn he had missed that shot long and once again missed it long here I'm sure that was jarring because he would he would have liked to have just gotten it done right then and there in the first match point then center hits a service winner wide on the second match point and then once again on the third match point Djokovic had a, a shot you thought because he managed to block the return back short and low and Sinner approached to his back end and just closed in very tight on the net. Novak didn't really, he, it, it, the, the passing shot was essentially down the middle and uh, he, he was kind of going at him. And Sinner was able to just take it as a forehand volley and put it away easily from on top of the net. You wonder why Novak possibly could have tried the top spread lob, but he certainly could have tried an angle back end more to get more angle on his pass. So he wasn't a mistake that he made but he just it was a little surprising that he didn't do more with the passing shot then center comes up with a great second serve and an ace and you could see that Djokovic was uh a bit stunned you know right? the way he played the five ball game but very slowly and methodically and take more bouncing of the ball but before each serve and trying to sort of get his equilibrium back and try to forget about what happened in the previous game. But he made a bunch of errors in that game. Despite leading 30-15, he lost the next three points, got broken, and center served it out. So what does it all mean, Bunch? Well, disappointing that your last match of the season, you lose some triple match point against one of your cheap rivals. 
who's playing you for the third time, third time in a 12 or 13 day span and beating you for the second time. On the other hand, he, everything else was so perfect about the year. And I also think I'd like to discuss with, get your thoughts on this too. My feeling is he will, he'll get over this. Uh, he, he, I, I thought that it was a tough loss he took at Wimbledon too. When you think about set coin for a two sets to love lead over Alcaraz and missing a fairly routine backhand cross court into the top of the net, and eventually losing loses that tiebreaker and eventually loses in five despite an, another opening in the fifth set when he had a break point to go up to love and missed a swing volley. So that match could have plagued him that might because it meant that he he, he couldn't come to New York in pursuit of the Grand Slam that that quest was now over but look what he did after that didn't lose a match until Sinner beat him in the round robin and turned at a 19 match winning streak so I feel like again he'll put this loss behind him it's a lift for Sinner for sure but for Djokovic I don't think it's that I I, I think it's something he will put behind him and he'll get his mind in Australia and he'll feel like all told he had one of his his great the greatest seasons of his career it's the fourth time in his career that he's won three majors in a single season. No other man has done that. And, you know, obviously he's in the final of the fourth. He wins the year-end championships, which is the fifth biggest tournament. He wins the one th- two 1,000s in Cincinnati and Paris. So it was it was almost almost a perfect season outside of that last loss. And I, I think he'll get over it. Also, as he said, but he did say later, you have to just say bravo when somebody goes out and does what Sinner did and throws the triple match point down. So yes, Novak can question a few of his judgments, question the slice back, and wonder why he didn't do more with the pass. But Sinner just would not falter, would not waver from that point on. And that was also very gutsy because he knew his his country was going to be out of it as well, and their dream for the Davis Cup would be over. So in a nutshell, I think it was a really... I would go as far as to call it a splendid season for Novak Djokovic in 2023 because he also came from, uh, you know, he, he, by winning the three slams, he took a two-major lead over Rafael Nadal. And, you know, the first step was to equal Rafa in Australia, which he did. Then he surpassed him at Roland Garros, and then he put the gap at two majors by winning in New York at the U.S. Open, taking his fourth U.S. Open title. So, you, you know, he he... He, he had major priorities this year. He didn't want to play. His, he, he played a very selective schedule, but he really got the most out of himself in 2023. And I think uh, that's why I think that the, the final chapter, the final moment against Sinner, a stunning reversal at the end, will not, will, not live, will not linger very long in his mind. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I share your I share your opinion on that because I just I just think he'll be um, he'll look at the broader picture and he'll he'll, he'll realize that uh, in you know there are many 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 matches that he pulled out this year that you know will just should give him so much of a lift that he you know he's still able to be you know that much stronger over the over over the course of the season than the rest of his rivals overall and just you know he'll go into the he'll use that thought and go into next season where he'll be looking to peak at, at the majors and, you know, try to rectify this in his mind at the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And as you said, he pulled out so many type of matches this year and he won two tournaments and two finals from match point down against Corda and Adelaide early in the year. And then of course the epic with Carlos in Cincinnati, which where he's match point down in the second set tie break. So 
he's such a great clutch performer. I don't think he's going to come down too hard on himself for either Wimbledon or Turin. And 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 also he took seven titles this year, Bodge, which is the most he's won since 2016 in a single year, and that was also impressive, given that he only played 12 events, yeah. 12 tournaments, and then and some Davis Cup on top of that. So. I, uh, I, yeah, I think, I think he's got to be delighted with, with the campaign that he waged. Yeah, for sure. I'm, if you want to compare it to the, the rest of his standout seasons where he won the three, three of the four majors, where, where would this one rank for you? Obviously, because in 2011, he went on that remarkable, you know, 41 match win streak at the start of the yeah. year. And, you know, yeah. it was, you know, in some ways that was, that was the best competition he ever faced with, with Roger and Rafa essentially in their prime still. And then, you know, obviously, you have 2015, which statistically is still the greatest season he's ever had. But then, and then 2021, where he came just a match away from the from the Grand Slam. But you know, where do you put this one, given that it's 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 two years later and it's at at the, at 36, and he's got you know this youth, this trio of Rune Alcaraz and Sinner to really contend with. And granted, Rafa was really out of the picture this year, but you know, still still has to be you know up there with the very the very top. You can certainly make that argument, right? You can. I mean, and it will be given, given how you know that he's thirty-five, turning thirty-six in in the middle of the year. So you want his first major, he's still thirty-five, and the, and the rest he was or he was thirty-six. To do that at thirty-six, maybe you put it in a special category. You sized it up well. Twenty eleven, he's dealing with Federer and Nadal and playing them a ton, and he lost one match to Roger at the French in the semis. But otherwise, it was only lost to Roger. He, he he dominated Rafa and beat Rafa in the Wimbledon and U.S. Open finals that year. And uh, you know it would I. It, it's so hard to choose. Fifteen. I would. I guess I would say that the best Novak Djokovic ever in in some ways was fifteen. Uh, when the only loss at the majors was to Stan at the Vavrinka, who came from a set down to beat Novak in the French final. But certainly. And 21, I would put this above 21. Yeah. Because of the exploit, for a variety of reasons, I would. And dealing with a surging Alcaraz and in a new co- new serious competition, I would I put it above 21. It's hard to hard to decide where I put it in terms of 15 or 11. Because the end of 11, he didn't play as well after the Open. I think he was understandably a little weary and battling some injuries. And the, end, the very end of the year was not that great at the Open. He sort of done everything he wanted he didn't finish strong but uh 15 he did 15 he did finish strong and and uh you know he had those those wins over roger in the finals of wimbledon and the open and th- those were memorable uh, clashes skirmishes and uh then he did win the year-end championships that year as well so i suppose 15 would be the best and this one would be close behind it uh maybe on a tie which with, with 2011 but we're t- we're talking about such slim margins. I, I, I would hate to really have to write them, but that's yeah. that's my feeling right now in that order. You know, that's that's it's just amazing that you can have four seasons like this, and you know, the twelve-year gap as well. It's it's quite remarkable. And and obviously, where do you see next year for him? Given given that the priority will be the Olympics and just adding more majors, and you know, he's going to want to tie Roger at Wimbledon. He's going to want to you know, continue his domination in Australia. And then, of course, you got that tricky part of the year with going going from the clay in Roland Garros, the clay season, and then going to Wimbledon. He's referenced it a few times as well, and then coming back to the clay and then back to the Open. So that scheduling, and that, that three or four-month stretch is going to be really key for him, I think. 
It is. I think I see him playing. I, I would really be surprised if he played too many clay events prior to the Roland Garros. Uh, you know, may, may, maybe doesn't even play Monte Carlo. I don't know, Monte Carlo hasn't gone so well for him in recent years. I don't know exactly how he'll look at it, but he, he doesn't want to be worn out uh, when the Olympics comes. And the thing is, he will be going all out to try to defend his title at Roland Garros and then to get Wimbledon back, as you said, you know, because of Roger and the record. And he was so close to an eight this year and it was a one set away. And then he, after all that, to go back on the clay. So it's going to make the Open tough too because he'll have been through so much, assuming he does well in all of those, Roland Garros, Wimbledon, Olympics. Then to have to recharge the engines and get ready on the hard courts and be in peak form for the Open to defend the title there might might be difficult. But I still see him coming away, regardless of what happens in his quest for the Olympics, I think his first gold medal, I do see him uh, winning a couple more majors next year. That's my guess. If I had to pick, I'd say two. And most likely, the two would be Australia and Wimbledon. Yeah. I mean, he's lost two finals combined in those two events. So that would be, those are his strongest majors and the ones where you would consider him a, a favorite of sizable over the rest of the field. Yeah. Uh, and like, and like Rafa, you know, I mean, he's been invincible in the finals in Melbourne. You know, the, the two losses you mentioned are both at Wimbledon, one to Murray and one to Carlos. Never lost at Australian finals. So I would feel like, you know, he's going to come in really eager and determined and rested and not to Melbourne, and then Wimbledon, he'll, he'll really want to get it back, and it's been his place, it's been his tournament, despite the loss this year, so I, I like his chance of it. Roland Garros will be tough to defend, but again, as we know, he's going to be in the thick of things at, at all four, regardless, but he seems to be able to keep getting himself up for all the majors. Some of it will depend on you know, what does he pull off in that span? You know, does he pull off a Wimbledon and Olympics back-to-back, which would mean that maybe He's not quite as hungry to win the Open. Some of it will depend on that, but I just feel like he'll still, he will schedule himself in a way where he can be as, in as close to peak form for all of those as possible. And I expect his level to be essentially where it was in, in 2023. I would be surprised if we saw any kind of decline. I expect him to stay about where he is. The question is going to be what the likes of Alcaraz and Sinner can do to how much they can improve and what they can do against him, but I think he will he will keep his level up exceedingly high. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I guess, um, you know, that's a good transition to start talking about Alvarez because, um, you know, he had, he obviously had a very stellar first half of the year and won six titles and won Wimbledon remarkably in that fifth set over Djokovic and, you know, is was really looking like he would finish the year number one. And of course, uh, you know, then... He had that amazing battle with Djokovic in the Cincinnati final and, you know, where Djokovic was kind of struggling in the heat and he had a chance to kind of finish to, he, he looked like he was, he had the mental edge at that point of the rivalry, but, but nonetheless, it was a terrific hard fought preset battle. And, you know, he had some, some tough defeats after that, the rest of the season and battled some injuries as well in the Asian swing and, you know, lost early in the Paris masters. But then I actually felt like the ATP finals even though he lost so decisively to Djokovic in the semis, I thought it was a net positive for him, given how well, you know, given that it was his first time there and the fact that, he, you know, it's fast indoor hard courts and it's not something that it would be suitable right away to his style of play. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was all it was all just very new for him and he was still serving extremely well throughout the whole week and 
I guess he can take that kind of as a positive. Um, even though he was beaten quite quite handily in the semis, I still think uh, overall you still have to say it was a it was a successful year for him despite finishing. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. And the point you make about Turin is a good one because you know he starts off with a with a a tough loss to Zarev in three sets. Didn't play a bad match by any means, but he lost. So you had back against the wall immediately, and he bounced back, beat Rublev, beat Medvedev, which was impressive, avenging that U.S. Open defeat, and he beat Medvedev in straight, and then gets into the semis. And yes, but he, he it was a top-of-the-line Novak that day in the semis, and Carlos you know, was un, wasn't able to break him across two sets. And But yes, he could look back on that as a step in the right direction, for sure. And the question is going to be, how does he look back on the entire period that you mentioned, the post-Wimbledon period, having six titles already, never winning another one, which would we I don't think any of us would have believed that. And yes, he had a, it was a it was a gallant defeat against Djokovic in Cincinnati. It wasn't a bad open where he lost in Rebbenev and a force at semi, not terrible, but then it didn't go well the rest of the year uh, leading up to turn, which is why reaching the semifinals there was important. What I'm going to find interesting is to see wh- where is he with his psyche, you know, because he was so confident after Wimbledon. That was such an impressive win for him. Sort of the crowding moment of his career, even more than the Open the year before when Djokovic was not there, when he saved himself from a match point down against center and went on to win the title over Casper Ruud. This one was, you know, to have to head on beat Novak in a Wimbledon final, become the second player to do that, to beat him in a five-setter, coming after getting destroyed in the first set. So, yeah, I think he can be very proud of the year, but not, he's not going to be terribly satisfied with what happened the second half of the year. And I think that may have created some doubts. He's, he's a very confident, exuberant performer out there. And I think yeah, he started maybe questioning himself a bit, and he had some injuries that did not help in the fall and maybe tried to rush back a bit when he came to Paris. Maybe he was not really ready because it was sort of dual injuries that he was battling. And uh, the good news was I thought he looked physically very vibrant, very, he looked first rate physically in turn. I never sensed in any of those matches there was any uh, uh, issue with his movement. So it'll be really interesting to watch, but in some ways, in as you know, and we could segue over to this, in some ways in the second half, he got overshadowed by Sinner, obviously Novak, Took the took the biggest prizes of the second half by winning the U.S. Open and the year at championships. But Sinner was terrific and got his first Masters 1000, the final runner-up to Novak and Turin, and he won the last three matches he played against Medvedev. It was a really he ended that season with a flourish and rising to a new level of his game for sure, serving better than they ever has before and just more solid for the backwards. You don't feel he's as flashy anymore. He could still overwhelm you with pace and de- devastatingly potent ground stuff, but not miss very much when he's right. And then the serve is, is, is just tougher to break, tougher to read. There's so much that is markedly improved. So that, I think, sets up a very interesting 2024 in the sense that Sinner comes into the year, he'll come into the year, and then winning the Davis Cup at the very end. What what a what an accomplishment that was. And the recovery against Djokovic and then beating Di Minore in the final against Australia, crushing him. So I feel like he he comes in on a high. I don't feel like Carlos's confidence is totally destroyed, but he kind of is looking to rebuild a bit because there's no greater, no matter how well you may feel you're hitting the ball or how 
how well you think you're practicing or how good you feel if you're not winning. I mean, winning breeds winning. And that's what was going on with Carlos in the first half of the year. And that's probably what eventually led him to Wimbledon is because despite the fact that he had the cramping against Djokovic and Roland Garros, he bounces right back. He wins Queens. He wins Wimbledon, inexperienced grass court player and takes those two titles. And I think he really was on top of the world, literally on top of the world at that moment. And maybe the turning point was the Djokovic loss in Cincinnati, which had Carlos in tears briefly afterwards. But I, I, I think he, uh, he'll be doing a lot of reflecting. He talked after turn about how he was going to have to, he wouldn't be thinking about his wins over Djokovic. He wouldn't be thinking about Wimbledon or the close loss in Cincinnati. He'd be thinking more about how badly Novak beat him at Turin. So I like the commitment to excellence and the idea that he's very demanding of himself and he, he loses and he loses soundly like he did there. He wants to examine it and look himself in the mirror and say, what do I have to do to turn this around? That was not good enough for my end. And I think he looks at the second half of the season sort of essentially the same way, don't you? That he, it's not what he expected. He expected more success. So he will be, he'll be very determined, but he's going to be surrounded by I mean, obviously, both Novak and, and Sinner are going to be re ready to confront him, as are others. And the question is going to be, can he get back on that winning track early in the season that we saw from him over the first half of this year, which started with not even being able to play Australia. So he, he really managed to come off the, the injury that he had pre-Australian Open and started playing well very quickly in a couple of clay court events and transferred it over to the hard courts where he played great in in, and he didn't win in Miami. He lost his center there, but he won Indian Wells convincingly over uh, over Medvedev, almost embarrassed Medvedev there. And I feel like that first half of the season, where you know Carlos was was beginning to believe that he was the best player in the world. Now, now he has to try to sort of reacquire that taste, that that feeling, that inner view of himself. That's what I think makes the start of the year so interesting. How does he do in Australia? coming back, having missed it this year, knowing that it's been Novak's tournament, also knowing that Sinner has been surging. So Alcaraz will be, we'll have to watch him very carefully in the early stages of the year to see how confident he is. Yeah, for sure, because it definitely feels like Sinner is the second best player in the world right now if we take across the last two months and the confidence he's gained and all these big wins that he's got. And you feel like more people are talking about him as the favorite and contender right behind Novak to win Australia. And it'll be up to Alcaraz to kind of, you know, lay low for a little while in the, in, you know, and from that standpoint and be, be the chaser again. And I think that mindset could serve him well, assuming the off season goes well and you'll come into Australia as one of the favorites. Yes. But maybe not quite as so high as he would have been, you know, had the second half of the year gone differently. So I think that's a good way of looking at it. And I also got the, yeah, got I this whole stretch. I, now, yeah. I follow that I, number one. Sorry, I'm, I'm just yeah. To supplement what you're saying, I what would be great would be, given what you just described and what I was saying, it, to see Sinner and Alcaraz on the same half of the draw in Australia would be yeah. really interesting to see them play a big semi with potentially the other the winner coming up against Novak in the finals. Mm -hmm. That would be that would be really really interesting, and and because. You say about Sinner at the end of the year. I would say if we look at the entire second half of the year, even in, in its entirety, post Wimbledon through the through the through Turin, I would say Sinner was the second best player through that stretch too, because of winning a Masters one thousand over this summer. And yeah, he didn't 
got had a tough losses there over the open where he was hurting some, but then an incredible fall. And uh, you know, Davis Cup win for his country and runner up in Turin and all his wins over Medvedev to sort of try to distance himself from Daniel. So I think I think that uh yeah, I would say second best player of the second half of the year. Yeah. Uh for sure, because obviously he had the big wins and, and winning the first Masters 1000, getting to the semis of a major for the first time. And then the really big wins, the signature ones over the fall against against all of his chief rivals, beating Medvedev three times, beating Djokovic two of the three times that he played him, had a win over Carlos in there as well, and a lot of other rivals and Rublev and Tsitsipas. And so it was really a, it was really a stretch of huge wins for Sinner that we hadn't seen in a while. And also just marquee improvements in his game when it comes to the serve being such a huge weapon and, you know, the explosive, the movement in the corners and just so hard to, uh, so hard to stop with the added forehand drop shot as well. And some of the variety in his game, him constantly improving the cool demeanor that he has. And it was just the combination of shot making and big ground strokes off of both wings combined with all these improvements that have been coming long time coming, I guess, and putting it all together. It's just been, uh, you know, a serious package to deal with. Yeah, and I just think he's he's in addition to the stroke improvements and the the, the variety that he's added to his game with the drop shot is is that he's he's just a better match player than he's been before. Yeah. I feel like you know he stays with you game in game out. He's a, he's a different player that way. You don't see him going into bad patches the way he once did. It doesn't happen very often. So, mm-hmm. and and that again. That's that's going to be important in the matches against Carlos because Carlos tends to be a bit streaky himself, but I feel like Sinner is now at times impenetrable. Uh, it, it's really hard to find a way to get through him. You just have to lift your own gate, which Djokovic had done clearly did in the final of turn and seemed on his way to doing in that in in the Davis Cup match. But Sinner is is a much steelier competitor to me than he's ever been before you know it's unwavering and i i like that growth as well and i wonder whether some of that is the product of his discussions and his interaction with one of his two coaches darren cahill i just can't help but believe that cahill has something uh significant to do with this yeah for sure um yeah it's been it's it's really been a long time coming and cahill is is uh has been working with him on this like basically for a year, year and a half, and we're finally seeing it all come to fruition. The next question would be to do it in best of five and back it up, back up these wins in a row to where you really feel like get to a Grand Slam final and get to, you know, get to a championship match. And then that's really the only thing missing really at the at this point, all the other boxes. Yeah, I agree. Ticked. I agree. He has to prove that. Carlos proved it. And then some by by what he did at Wimbledon to be beating Novak in a five set final, and yes, Sinner it was it was an important step. Can't really blame him for the Open. He was in bad shape in that match with, with Zarev. There wasn't much he could do, but uh, Wimbledon and Wimbledon he got outplayed. That it was closer than the score, but he lost it straight to Novak there. But it's it's all been an upward trend, and I feel like we're going to see him assert himself in these best of five set matches he's going to become much better at that and look i mean australia he, he should be right in there he should be I, I i certainly would looking at it right now i would regardless of what happens with the draw i would make him the second favorite after novak and put him 
ahead of Carlos. How about you? Yeah, I have. I would. I would agree with that. Um, that's that's basically everything that we've seen in the second half of the year. That would suggest. That would suggest putting in there. Of course, it, I, I am aware that the you know results in the fall don't always translate at the very beginning of the year, the following year, and you know there with the off season and you know things can happen in the draw. But I definitely think he's made those leaps enough to make him the second favorite. Yeah. Now, what'll be interesting, Raj, and, and you see it with all these guys at the top. I mean, if you look at Sinner, let's just take the ATP Finals, which you started our discussion with, and right? we've been wanting to spend some time on that. It, nothing was easy there for him. Yes, yeah. Sitsipas win was to start off, but you know, then he really had to battle hard, and obviously he he squeezed it out against Novak in a third set tiebreaker, great win, and but he had to go right down to the wire to beat Ruda. In his, in his last round-robin match, and I think he was trying very hard. There was all that speculation about whether he'd want to keep Novak out of the semis and not try as hard as he was trying his hardest. And he escaped a break point at 3-4 in the third and won that match impressive fashion. But then again, another three-setter with Medvedev the next day, and then he loses to Novak. So I'm just saying it can be a thin line. Uh, and all these top players know that. It's not as great as Sinner is now and as much improvement as he's made, and it's been substantial that you know he'll be challenged too and he knows it he knows it and uh, that's what i like about him he's on top of everything else we've said about him he's he's more and more professional in his approach and uh that's helping him too you feel like it, there's the composure and the you know the mental side of the game is another area where he's improved by leaps and and, and bounds just uh, enormous improvement yeah for sure um, it's a lethal combination, really. You know, when you watch him in this in this phase, and you hope it can carry over to next year because, yeah, it would just be it, it would really be the start of a of a strong generation with him and Alcaraz and uh, and and Runa as well, who's going to look to. Yeah, we should talk about but just one last thing about Sinner Bunch compared to Carlos. Carlos, obviously, we know he's more of an artist. And, yeah. and he, you know, there's a brilliance and a, and a shot-making, shot spectacular shot-making ability and, and something that he really enjoys about playing is some of the, the incredible shots he'll make off both sides improbably. Gives him great pleasure to please the crowds. And he has to learn to, to go with a little bread and butter sometimes too and be, more, and be more willing to do it in less fancy, flamboyant fashion and get the job done that way, which is where I think Sinner has the edge right now. The other area I think that maybe Sitter has a, an edge over Carlos is simply a better serve. He knows exactly what he wants to do with the serve. He's relying on power and and impeccable placement as well. And I feel like there's no sort of second guessing himself. Well, I feel like with Carlos, he's got all these options about whether he wants to throw in the kicker or whether he wants to serve big or what he almost think has too much to think about at this point. I think I, I, so. I give Sitter the edge in the serving department. And, and and that'll be interesting, again, to see how Carlos sorts that out. Because we all thought coming into the season that maybe Carlos was going to think more the way Sinner did, was going to shape his serve more the way Sinner has and put more of a premium on the power and, you know, and service winners and, and, and go, you know, try to overwhelm his opponents that way. I still feel like there are times he's trying to be more cagey with it and mix it up and 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 that he might be better off to just let loose it and serve bigger more consistently 
I'm interested to see how that plays out over 2024 with both of these guys because I don't I think Sinner has found the formula on the serve more than Carlos has. Yeah, for sure, and we've seen Sinner change tinker with his technique a lot, like the last last couple of seasons, and this year after that loss to Altmaier and Wimbledon, he went back in the garage and changed to a you know a pinpoint stance, but also the motion itself yeah. looks a lot more efficient uh, apart from just the pinpoint stance, and he he really seems to be focusing on power and placement in a in a way, whereas Alcaraz, yeah, he was relying on the kick serve quite a lot uh, during the clay season and at Wimbledon. We started to see him serve better, particularly in certain matchups against, for instance, whenever he plays Novak, he seems to always out-ace him in a lot of these matches, and he seems his serve seems to be working quite well in in some cases. But then he has matches where it's just, you know, it, yeah, it could be a liability, like where it's just uh, you know he's barely winning like forty percent of his first serve points, and it's yeah, which is crazy, which is crazy. I mean, a case in point. What you're saying there is he didn't necessarily serve great the whole match against Novak, not didn't serve that well in the first set or the fourth set, but in the fifth set he served magnificent. It was one of the best sets I've ever seen from him serving. And Novak was making a lot of returns on first serves, but he just could not break them. He had the one opportunity early to go up to love, but after that, Carlos served tremendously, and I felt like in that case he was just gunning it more. And I, I, I don't know really how Juan Carlos Ferrero fe- feels about this, but I think it's going to be one of the keys to success or failure, you know, or how much success in in, in the coming year is is sorting out that serve. And boy, Sinner has done that to the hill. Yeah, for sure. You mentioned something about Carlos' psyche that I kind of wanted to dig into a little bit more earlier, which is um, obviously him and Novak, they've been practicing quite a bit. Uh, and, you know, they've been playing each other, you know, in practice sets before Paris, before the ATV finals. And, you know, Carlos always gets asked about Novak. And it's always a question of, you know, especially when he was trying to chase number one and, and cement that for the year end. Uh, you know, he was constantly being asked about Novak. Novak does this, you know, what do you have to do to get to Novak? You know, all these all these kind of questions. And, and Carlos is very dignified about it. And they have a great relationship off the court, him and Novak. And it's very respectful. And all of that is great. But I wonder if almost becoming too close with Novak as a big rival of his is is not the best move and he maybe ha- would have to look to try to distance himself a little bit. I've heard this opinion from some observers in the game and I just wanted to kind of get your take on it as well because obviously yeah, I've I seen don't... one and two be be be, uh, be rivals and be close with one another but they're not always like, you know, practicing. Like, I mean, they're going to be playing an exhibition in, in Saudi Arabia in December as well and th- this can all be useful as well. Maybe I'm reading too much into it but um, it's just interesting to see that it's you know, it it's so close with each other. Yeah, yeah. I I I've heard all that talk, and it's valid. It's valid. I get it. I don't think Ferrero would encourage it if he thought it was harming Carlos. I and also here's the thing: you mentioned those practice sessions prior to Paris, prior to Turin, but that's the whole thing. It was leading into the tournament, and they knew they weren't going to play until. You know, maybe a week later, there was going to be a nice gap between their practice session and an actual real match. Yeah. And I don't feel like the rest of the time they're talking or hanging out. Or they, I think they set those practice sessions up. And in some ways, I think they both benefited and they both enjoyed it. And But I don't really get the feeling they're trying to be buddies either. And you could kind of see it at the end of the match in Turin. You know, it was a serious uh, handshake from both. And they didn't look like they're certainly not enemies. I think it's great that the mutual respect is there, but I'm not so sure that that really 
I think what was setting Carlos back was just more of the what we talked about earlier, the losses to other players. Yeah. The that then not having that same feeling of security about himself that he had during the first half of the year and that sense of nobody's gonna beat me and it'll or it'll take Novak at his best, but almost cocky, but in the best sense of the word. Cocky but but not disrespectful of opponents. So I'm not so sure that those if they were constantly doing it, if they were, you know, between every, you know, every time there was a gap in the schedule, running off and playing an exhibition like Saudi Arabia, like you mentioned, and constantly practicing during the week. You saw it actually after they've each played their first round match. If they went out and practiced again, you'd begin to wonder whether that was healthy. But I think the the way it's been conducted so far, I I, I don't I don't see it that way. I think that in, that that ne- neither one of them. From Novak's end, too, does he really want to give too much away in the practice session? So yeah. you could say you could question it from his end, but I think it's fine. And I remember it, you probably remember, too, that leading up to that Paris Bercy event in 2021, uh, Djokovic, who had lost at Medvedev at the Open, was practicing with Medvedev. Hmm. Now, again, you know, was that in Medvedev's interest? Was it in Novak's interest? Who really knows? But I think what they just, they all get along pretty well and they feel like if there's, some distancing, especially, you know, that sessions are going on well before the tournament or well before they would meet in a match. I, I think it's fine. Maybe there's a bit of an overreaction from the tennis cognizant and community to that. I think so. And it's also kind of a rare situation where, yeah, I mean, there's such a big age gap and, yeah. you know, really, really, it, it's, it's a different kind of a rivalry to any of the others that we've had so far. And you know, maybe some of the matches that we, we've seen each other that's, you know, and people kind of saying that, you know, the Cincinnati loss set Carlos back and relating that to them practicing with each other. It's it's interesting, but I, I think I share your view as well that, you know, it's more it's more about the general feel of the second half of the year and losing to other players, uh, you know, rather than it being about this. But I guess... Um, yeah, we, and Cincinnati, and as far as Cincinnati's concerned, Vance, as you, it, as you mentioned earlier, I mean... Carlos, it, it, it had everything you could. You, there's so much to say about that match and that moment in the course of the year because Djokovic was was in control early with a 4-2 lead in the first set. Then it was by the latter stages of that set, which he lost 7-5. He was very, he was wobbly. You could see there was some kind of sunstroke or heat stroke. We don't know exactly what it was, but he was not feeling well and he took his break, bathroom break after that set. And, Things got a little cooler. The conditions got better in the second set, but he was down 4-2 and worked his way back and worked his way back from match point. And then you had Carlos. After Novak has saved himself in the second set from match point down and earlier from a breakdown, Carlos saving all those match points at 5, you know, starting at 5-3 and then again at 5-4 in the third. He's saving two match points on his own serve, two on Novak's. You know, it was pretty amazing. Stop from him to take it down to the wire in a tie break and then even in the tie break Carlos came back from three love down to four all so I just think that was one of those matches that that has got the, the backdrop and any practicing or what the relationship was like no that was just about a match that was hanging in the balance both ways that went Novak's way in the end and and that's what I think devastated Carlos that not not any kind of complicated psychological uh issues or or what, you know, whether it was a mistake to try to be uh, kind of, you know, around a no back too much. I just think that that was about a great match that 
was going to be a devastating disappointment for the loser and exhilarating for the winner. And I think it carried Novak through the open, and I think it lingered with Carlos. So maybe maybe lingered enough to cost him the Medvedev match at the open, and then things spiraled from there, you could say. But just to get back to your original point, I think I think they're both fine. I think they both know what they're doing. I don't think there's anything going on in Novak's camp where they're trying to sort of get in Carlos's head or vice versa. And the other thing about the practice session bunch, I don't know if you watched those on tape. I did. I feel like they're, you know, they're going all out for sure, but it's just, it's not the same thing. That, and they know it. You got no crowd. You have no tension. You just play the points and it, it's a little robotic and yet they're trying hard and it's good tennis for them. It's good. It's stimulating to be up against your premier rival, but they both know there's a big difference between a, you know, a practice set and, and, and reality. Good. I'm glad we flushed that out a little bit and just uh, just kind of talked that through. But I guess um, I guess we can we can also talk about Daniel Medvedev because he also had a very good first half of the year after the disappointing loss to Korda in the third round of the Australian Open. He really changed his whole season around, winning those five titles and winning Rome unexpectedly uh, on the clay, and then and then um, you know having some good results in the second half of the year, but never really never winning a title and losing all those matches too. Center at the end, and uh, you know, a great performance from him to beat Carlos, as we talked about in the U.S. Open semis. And hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Good effort to get to the Wimbledon semis. So, I mean, I mean, I mean, he has to look at it as overall his best season outside of the majors uh, and his second best season overall. But where does this leave him, leave him heading into, you know, 2024, Listen, I guess, with the Tom as you know, he was riding so high. All he got to have five titles in his collection by the end of Rome. To, you know, to have won Miami over Sinner. He was on such a tear through the the end of the hard court season. He lost to Carlos in the final of Indian Wells, but wins Miami, and then that was a big boost to win Rome. But then he got he had the the first round loss in Roland Garros and. Yes, it was a good Wimbledon. Then he managed to fend off Eubank in five sets over on court one. That was a nice win after Eubank had had such a good tournament and beaten Tsitsipas. And, but you know what? It was jarring, I think, that he lost so badly there to Carlos. Then to come back from a mediocre summer and beat Carlos in such a, an exhilarating semifinal, but then lose the final to Novak who we'd beaten two years ago in the final. No disgrace by any means. He knew Novak had played a great match, but it's never easy to lose those major finals. And Daniel had, had felt that same thing when he lost to Rafa in the 22 Australian final. And then 
all those losses, the three losses to Sinner, a couple of finals and then the semi of turn. I feel like it was the second half, despite being very consistent, was something of a downer because I think he thought he'd win more titles. And I don't think if you told him you're going to lose to Sinner three times in a row, I, I don't think he would have believed it. He'd never lost to him, period. He was 6-0, and and now it's 6-3. and And I think he um, he's not going to be down on himself necessarily, but he knows what he's up against because Carlos beating him again in Turin so comfortably again and sort of almost kind of re- reestablish himself in that rivalry. And, you know, Novak overall is getting the better of him too. And, yes, he had one win over Novak this year, but a couple of losses, including the open final. So he looks at his chief rivals and it hasn't been going his way. So yes, best season in terms of consistency, but not as good as 21 when he won a major. Yeah. And so, and better than 22. That's how I think it was mm-hmm. not as good as 21, better than 22, but still not quite what da- Daniel would have wanted. And, and I, and I don't know if he's going to be able to find the solution going forward against Sinner or Alcaraz. And obviously, he'll continue to battle hard against Novak, but you, you take Novak, all things being equal, you Novak with the edge. So you just wonder, where does that leave Medvedev? Not to mention, you brought up Olgaruna earlier, and I think Olgaruna is going to be right in the thick of things next year. I don't think there's any of these guys. He beat Medvedev this year. He's given Novak a really tough time and had a win over Novak in the Paris indoor event at the end of last year. Carlos, he lost to at Wimbledon, but he had a win over him that and re- where Carlos had to retire in, indoors in Paris the year before. He's beaten Sinner. He almost beat him again at the end of the year yeah, in the match we mentioned in Turin. So you kind of look at all these key matchups with Runa, and he just had a terrible spell where he lost seven out of eight matches after Wimbledon that and his back was bad and he just wasn't right physically. But once he kind of got his physicality back and then brought Becker back into the picture, very nice end to the year, a couple of really good matches with no back. And, uh, you know, almost made it to the semis of Turin. He he comes in, I think, with a lot of confidence into 2024. And I expect him to finish the year. You know, I mean, obviously we, we have this big three, uh, uh, Novak and and uh, Djokovic, Sinner, Alcaraz, and their battle for supremacy will be fascinating. But I, and then Medvedev is right in there. But you, I think Runa will challenge hard for that number four spot and give everybody trouble again next year. I can't put my finger on it exactly. I mean, I think he's a really good all around player, one of the biggest second serves in the game. Forehand can be a little dicey at times. I love his two hander. And he's just a very smart player out there and a, and a very tough competitor. And he's a he has this attitude about him, Bodge, that I just feel like he doesn't fear anybody. He goes out there actually believing he should beat everybody that he plays. He doesn't care whether it's Djokovic or Alcaraz or Sinner. And I want to see him play those guys a bunch of times in the coming year. And if he stays healthy, I, I, I guess I would pick him to finish ahead of Medvedev in 2024, if you ask me now. I put him right behind the big three at number four with Medvedev slightly behind him at, at number five in the world. Yeah, I like what you said about his all-court game and also just, uh, you know, how smart he is as a player and the moxie that he has and all that yeah. lends itself to doing very well against the top guys. My only question with him is just, uh, I still think he needs to figure out a little bit what his identity is as a player. 
because I think that will that comes into play with the physicality issues and kind of the shot selection dilemmas that he sometimes has. And I love that he comes forward, but sometimes he kind of comes forward, you know, on the wrong times and is willing to get past. And But he's one of those players that can really move past it and then he's able to be mentally tough again and then be right back in the thick of it and almost win the match. And, you know, yeah. he's up and down, but it's... But once he kind of irons out to the edges, and once he once he gets gets that focus back and doesn't tense up as much, I feel like he has all the tools to beat beat any of these guys on any day. He does, he does, and I agree. There are times when when he comes in at the wrong times, and that it, it, it hurt him in both both losses to Novak and Paris and Turin, and but and it hurt him at times against Sinner. But what I also like about him is the way that he can take a pasting like he did against Sinner the first set of their round-robin match in turn. And then he finds a way to sort of regroup and reassess, and and he adjusts his game. And you see kind of a different player. There's a lot of versatility in Runa. And and I really like that about him. I feel like, no, you think he's out of a match, but he's not. And uh, there's a lot of flexibility. I think this is an area where Becker's going to help them sort through this too, is the shot selection, the strategic acumen, all those things. I think Becker will help him work that out more clearly in his mind and we'll see him mature as a match player in the coming year and then hopefully not have these difficulties with players you assume he should beat that he struggled with. I still think a lot of that was the state of, of his physical state not being yeah. right. Yep. It was kind of the same thing with Felix where I always felt like Felix and Runa it was the it was that they, they were just hard a lot of the time when they when they were in these slumps and once they got out of it, I, I also expect, for instance, I expect Felix to do a lot better next year coming off of the year that he had because I still like the way he finished with winning Basel. And, you know, yeah. he, was, he was in the thick of this conversation this time last year as well. And, you know, it just kind of fell apart for him after Indian Wells. But I, I assess he'll be somewhere back in the mix. In some yeah, I think so. Bed. I just think the mix for him is going to be somewhere between 6 and 10 in the world. Yeah. And hopefully it's closer to 6 than to 10. But I agree with you, and especially the conditions are right. I mean, I know obviously he gave Rafa his toughest match at the twenty twenty two French was, so he can play on anything. But I still like him best, Bancho, on faster conditions and when the serve is really working. It, he, he can have, there are times when his serve can be one of the best of the game, and and everything flows from there for him. It's the cornerstone of his game. So I feel like we're going to see, yeah, we're going to see some strides again. It was a difficult year for him. He also was hurt a lot. And, and I think that it, it hopefully stays healthier in the, in the coming year. And he can, he can be a factor everywhere as well. And we, we know that, I mean, he almost had Medved at beat at that 2022 Australian. Uh, he had a match point in that. So Daniel would never even gotten that crack against Rafa. So I feel like Felix, again, he's also someone who's not, not uh, apprehensive about taking on the biggest names in the sport. Kind of enjoys it, and obviously a great crowd pleaser. And his his game, I think, is I think he's a very complete player. He's a great athlete. He can come forward. He volleys well. He's he's got he's got the whole package to me. The ground game is a little bit shaky at times. I worry about his backhand. Yeah, but overall, I think we're going to see much better things out of Felix, and we'll see more of the Felix of late twenty twenty two next year, hopefully for the whole year. Yeah, for sure. And also, I, I do also have to mention the consistency of Andre Rublev, finishing yeah. as number five in the world and obviously winning his first Masters, getting to three more major quarterfinals, pushing Novak the way he did in Paris. 
Yeah, and also and also yeah. coming so close to winning again in Shanghai and had had that match point against Hercatch there and yeah. you know in a hard fought match and he's shown some more more mental toughness. I feel like his backhand has improved and we've seen some considerable strides from him this year. Um, in in certain areas, you still feel like he's a little limited against the very best players, and we saw that come to fruition in in Turin. And he still goes dark on himself, you know, at at, at times mentally, and you know that that really sort of affects his. He's too tough on himself, I think, and you know that that shows in some of these some of these matches. And I think he was just exhausted after a really long year. But you know, I struggled to see. Also, I, I was thinking about this, and I kind of struggled to see him not be back in in Turin because even though I mentioned this stuff with the ceiling, I still think he's so darn consistent every single week of the year in in most of the tournaments that he plays that he just puts himself right in there every time. I agree with all that, and especially with what you said about the backhand. I mean, I think that's what makes him so tough now because for so long. He he was knocking the cover off the ball of his forehand. His forehand has always been a fearsome shot, and he and he's got a very good first serve. And so sometimes it it was all built around, largely built around the forehand. But you could get to the backhand. It's much harder to exploit the backhand now because it's a lot more solid, and and he can be aggressive with it and not miss it too much. And yeah, it makes him a tougher out. Now, having said all that, Maj. I don't see him cutting into the authority of the big three that we mentioned, or if Runa stays healthy, I, I like Runa's chances to, uh, I think they're bigger accomplishments possible. Runa can beat the bigger guys in a way that I don't think Rublev can. Yeah. And, and Daniel and Membedev, I, and for all the credit, for all that I criticized him just now, I still don't see him no collapsing there. He's still going to win a ton of matches. And he's still so hard, you know, he, he wears you down. He's just su- such a workhorse. I feel like Daniel will hold his ground in that range of five in the world. But then then comes the question, okay, can Rublev stay about where he is? I think he can, but I honestly think Bonstein might slip a notch or two, not because he's not still playing well, but because these guys are so good. Maybe next year. I still see him in turn, like you said, yeah. but maybe next year uh, Rublev ends the year at, say, seven in the world. Yeah eight in the world. That wouldn't shock me. And not because he's in sharp decline, but because the others are surpassing him. And Felix is making another surge. Runa's back to being, and Runa's a healthy Runa. All of those reasons. But it'll be interesting to watch Rublev for the reasons you cited. And that match against Djokovic in Paris was terrific. You know, won the first set and took it to a second set tie break. And Djokovic eventually wins at 7-5 on the third. It was a really impressive display. But he, he just has got his work cut out for him against Novak Carlos. And then Carlos handled him rather comfortably in Turin. And, you know, I, I, I remember that has his number. I think part of it is the friendship and the camaraderie. Part of it is just Medvedev's brick wall game breaking down Rublev eventually. But, boy, he, he, he will continue to win a lot of tennis matches and some tournaments. And he could stay in the top ten for quite you know three more years easily yeah his last four seasons is he's finished eight five eight five so yeah you know yeah and i see i think that's gonna kind of kind of stay that way it may be more eight than five but yeah i do think he uh he's he's become one of the really one of the most impressive professionals in the game his professionalism despite the dark side that you mentioned, which is a good description. You know, he gets so angry with himself, or if he gets a bad break, you know, a, a, an unlucky net court at the wrong time, or he can get furious. But he's much better at bouncing back from those little uh, 
self, you know, those little battles, inner inner battles, the battle with his inner demons. He he's quicker to turn things around now than he was, and uh, yeah, he too has improved as a competitor. So I'll, I'll be interested to watch it next year. My guess is we see him in that seven eight range when the the year comes to an end, but that still puts him into turn. Yeah, for sure. And then we also saw Zverev really bounce back and, you know, put together some, you know, obviously it started at the French, getting to the semis there, and then, you know, you know, playing that great match against Sinner, winning that at the US Open, and some good moments. Still not quite always winning against the very best players, but, you know, we saw him put together three three pretty good matches in Turin and, uh, you know, had his chances against Medvedev in that match, but was unlucky to get out, not get out of his group, even though he went two and one. So, um, you know, do you get the feeling that Zverev will kind of be in that top eight as well next year? And I do, I do. Uh, again, uh, you know, not. I mean, he, the upside for him. I mean, he's not like Rublev in the sense that I, I do feel I give him a better shot at the top guys. I mean, that's why he put that and that win over Carlos was important. He needed a win of that nature. He needed to be one of the big guys. Carlos had handled him in straight sense of the Open after Zverev had beaten Sinner. So I feel like. Yeah, I think he can sort of hold his ground. I, I I would be surprised to see Sarah make a move back toward the top five. If he did that, I'd be impressed. But the competition is so fierce up in in that territory. I I can't quite see it. But again, I can't see him out of the top ten either. Uh, the the question would be: Will we see him back at the year end championships next year? I wouldn't want to bet out of one way or another right now. I'd say it's fifty fifty. Yeah, for sure. And then you also have Sitsipas who's kind of in that same territory as well, where it's, uh, you know, he's got a lot of points immediately coming up at the Australian Open and that he's going to he's gonna try to defend those. And obviously, you know, he had a slump as well in the middle of the year uh, after Wimbledon and winning in Los Cabos and was able to rectify that a little bit and by getting to the Paris semis and a few good results at the end of the year and then got injured. And now the question is, how does he bounce back from the injury and also, also larger questions as well about his game and his return and backhand, and obviously all those same kind of kind of areas where we've been waiting to see that next step from him, um, and it, it didn't quite happen for him after after the Australian Open final this year. Yeah, listen, you described him well. He's got his work cut out for him. I mean, we saw some, we saw him make that. That, that wonderful run to the French final back in 21 when he lost to Novak despite a two-set lead in the final. And he, he played so well on his way into the finals, knocking off Medvedev, knocking off Zarev. We saw him have a very good Australian this year, as you said. And then he actually didn't play badly against Novak at all. You know, it, it was an early break in the first set and then a couple of tie breaks after that. Played a really good match. But the rest of the year didn't pan out the way he would have run it by any means. And it wasn't just the injuries in, in uh, the injury or injuries that he had in Turin, but other setbacks along the way. He had a real lull in the middle of the season, starting to play a little better indoors at the end. But it's hard for me to imagine, Baj, you know, Sissipas, I have to admit, I'd be shocked if we found him in the top five in the world next year. I'd be pleased for him if he could still keep some residence in the top chat, which I, I think he can, but I'm looking for him more toward the bottom of the top 10. I hate to say it. Love to be proven wrong because I think there's something a little different with the one-handed backhand, with the transition game, the the confidence to come in and volley, the, the flair that he has. And uh, 
you know, I know that one in the back end is actually can be considered his weakness. I actually think his forehand is his is his money shot. Yeah. But but I think for all the all of the guys that we just discussed are all going to be trouble for me. He can hold his own with a Rublev. I guess he can hold his own with Zarev. But can he hold his own with that upper crust? Obviously, the Novaks, the the Carlos's, the Sinners, the Runas, the Medvedevs. I don't know about that, uh, and uh, I and I I think his it's going to be a, a exceedingly difficult task for Sitsipas to keep to stay in the range where he's been, or to be a, a confident top five in the world player, and back in another major. I don't really see any of that as being likely in 2024. Do you? No, because I think a lot of those top players do have that edge over him at the minute, but I also think he can do a better job of getting himself to these matches than he did this year. So it would be interesting. Uh, well, actually, sorry, Vanch, I missed that. Of, of getting of, of getting to the latter stages more often oh, than, he did, okay. than he did this year and avoid the kind of slump that he did uh, in, 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 the, in the second in the second half of the, uh, of the year or that period uh, before the U.S. Open. And if he can avoid those type of losses and not lose early in the majors and not lose not lose to those bigger servers and lefties, the ones the tricky ones in the early rounds, and he can keep getting himself to the quarters and semis over and over and keep asking the question. Then, you know, obviously there's a chance that some scar tissue may build up, but it, but at least he's putting himself in those positions more and more where things can fall the right way for him. Whereas I don't, whereas he didn't even give himself the chance a lot of the times this year, and kind of the success of his year all just depended on the on the Australian Open final at the at the start of the year where things broke right for him and he won that match against Sinner. Yeah, they did. You're right. You're right. And this year was more about quantity than quality, unfortunately. Yeah. But I and you and I really hope you're right because I don't want I don't wish him any any uh ill fortune or bad results. I, I actually like watching him play a lot and I admire it. I, I admire him immensely as a player. But I, I um I just think those that upper crust is going to be very tough, and this it'll, it'll be a fascinating test because I don't think he's been faced with this coming into the last couple of seasons. It's all been sort of fun, and this whole rise going back to eighteen and nineteen, and and then winning the UN championships and all the the opposition he had then versus what he has now. I don't know. I I, I I'm 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 concerned for him about. Can he find the solutions against against the guys that are inevitably going to be standing in his way over the next couple of years? Now, the other thing we didn't mention about him, Bunch, is of course he, you know, he got involved in this relationship with Bedosa, and in fairness, I think that was distracting. I don't. It, it seemed to happen. It it happened in the middle of the season that it caught a lot of attention in the press, and he didn't hide it. Neither one of them hid it. And I, 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 I'm sure that was a distraction getting involved in the relationship. And I don't think it will be going forward. Assuming that they are stable, I think it'll be fine. And that, and it was just adjusting to this and getting involved in a very serious relationship, which he didn't appear to have been in in, in the previous years. And I, if he was, nobody knew it. But this one was an open book. Yeah. So I think that was also made things hard. But it made maybe me. The losses stung a little bit less as a result that he was happy in his private life. But I think again, all of that he'll 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 balance the scales on that in his mind, and and uh, he knows these next two or three years are critical for him. Yeah, for sure. I think the public nature of the relationship and the amount of talk that it got in the media, and also just 
you know, the amount of questions that he had to answer about it, it had to have been playing him for, for some of the some of some of that time there. But I think once it stabilizes, you know, maybe that just won't be a won't be mentioned in the conversation much more. But I guess, uh, but I guess also you also have those guys like Shelton now coming up and really, um, you know, and and you saw how well Corda played in, the, in in January as well. And there's these, you know, there's there's those guys in the eleven to twenty range that are just so tough on any given day as well. Your Demonors, your Hercatches of the world. And yeah. it's just well, Hercash, yeah, I agree with I agree with that totally. I mean, let's talk a little bit about that punch. I mean And and of course Fritz as well. And you got you know, you know yeah. those Americans all bunched up together and then re- Yeah, I, think I, I wonder whether we've seen the best the very best of Fritz. Not to say that again that I think he can't stay at ten in the world or that he can't continue to be in that range. Will he climb higher? Can he get better? Can Tiafo get better? I don't know. Shelton, yeah. we know the 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 ceiling for him. He's not near his ceiling yet, and he made the, for to do what he did to come off a long slump after being in the quarter of Australia, take a lot of hard knocks uh, along the way up until the Open, then to have this great U.S. Open, be in the semis, and then to finish the year as beautifully as he did, and win a title and have a win over Sinner. And uh, I mean that really, I think, solidified his place in the game. I think that was. That reinforced for him that he can be a great player. And it also told everyone else that whatever was going on between Australia and the U.S. Open, and part of it was he was never, you know, he still has a ways to go as a clay court player, and there was a lot of clay court tennis in there. But he didn't do well on the hard courts leading up to the Open either. Now I think the picture changed significantly with what he did in the autumn. And therefore able to finish the year, I guess it's 17 in the world. And all of that is going to be very beneficial to him heading into next year, you know, going back to Australia and, and you know, left-hander, all that layer, all that variety, all that variety on the serve, the temperament, you know, a father who was a player who's now his coach. He's got a lot going for him. I just feel like he can get considerably better in a way that, that Fritz and Tiafo can't. As for Corda, you mentioned Corda. You know, he's had this these lingering injuries of the wrist, and he was very honest about how the wrist, which of course was a cut things off for him after that great Australian Open, after the really good Adelaide where he had match point against Novak in the final, and the nice run in Australia, and then it, it kind of messed up his year up until the middle. And then when he came back, he talked about how the wrist can still could still there was still some lingering pain. So I worry about him with between that and other injuries. If he can stay healthy long enough, he just seems more prone to it than some of the other young players. And they're longer-lasting injuries, and I think they really get in the way of consistent results. He still finishes the year. Oh, I, I, I didn't. The last time I looked, I think he ended up about 25 in the world, and uh, that that wasn't bad considering how how much time he missed. Uh, but where I agree with you about him in terms of the positive is that. He's got a he's got a very tricky game, and he, and his timing is beautiful off the ground, and he can do it, it. Everything is so natural for him, and the big thing to him, I thought, was the serve, which was starting to improve. He needs to beef that up even a little bit more. But I feel like you know, he really moves well for his size, and you know, he's he, a couple wins over Medvedev this year, which was very impressive, including the Australian Open, and so. I'd like to see, I think that, that he could make a move toward the top 10 himself, but it all would be contingent upon a 
a body that holds up better than it has so far. And hopefully it doesn't have a chronic issue with the wrist. Yeah, that's a pretty good assessment of Corda and Shelton. And those two seem like the ones that have the biggest room to progress and and break into that top 10 range. I guess I was a little bit disappointed in Tiafo's season as a whole, because I think, uh, you know, even though he won a couple of titles, even though he broke into the top 10, uh, I don't really believe he had many like signature wins. And I also, no. uh, you know, and, and I also was a little disappointed in his fall season and also the, just the way the US Open finished for him. And, you know, because this time last year, we were really talking about him as, as breaking through or at least staying in that sort of eight to 12 range. And it didn't really end up happening for him. And, uh, and I, no, and not I, a good, but you mentioned the open. He did yeah. well at the open, and then he did, yeah, he did know, well to get to the quarters and he gets back to the quarters. So be really good opens in a row. But then, where I agree with you totally is, it was not a good performance against Shelton as well as Shelton played. You know, they they had the critical third set, and you know, it, Press could easily have won the third set, and Shelton saved himself, rescued himself with that amazing return, and it all turned. And and Shelton pulls the set out, and then I felt like Francis gave a kind of a. I'm not saying he quit in the fourth set, but he didn't. There wasn't a lot of spirit. He seemed a bit resigned to defeat, and I was disappointed by that because he's the kind of guy that can really get the crowds on his side. It was almost as if on that occasion he he felt like Shelton had them and that he couldn't get them back, which I don't think was true. I think the crowd could have been more divided if Francis had been more animated, but he was surprisingly subdued in that match. And then you're right. Coming off the open, he didn't didn't have a good fall. And so you just wonder, you know, he, he's he's kind of mercurial in a way. He's an interesting guy. He's extremely likable. And but I it's hard for him to get himself animated and in peak emotional condition for these matches, the way I would put it. Physically, I think he's there. But how up does he get for certain tournaments and certain matches? Can he bring that a, a bigger base of consistency to that? And and this year, he didn't do as well in that department as he had the year before. And I already know that the year before, Wayne Ferreira, his coach, w w was felt like Francis had, had, had room to grow in that area. He felt like his results could have been better. But instead, he digressed just a bit in 2023. And, and the question is going to be, can he... Can he lift it up again next year? I don't know. I, I, I don't. I, I don't want to count him out because he's he's a he's a very he's got certain gifts out there and he's got a real flair for competition. But I feel like maybe maybe he's going to stay about where he was this year. Yeah, for sure, because it gets really crowded in 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 that range and sort of these little little dips and bouts of inconsistency. It, it it makes you sort of question whether these players how much higher can they really go? But I think that's a testament to actually how how strong the top four and top five is right now, and just how tough it is. Yes, yeah. how could they beat Paul? Was they were at the eighteen final? Wouldn't you extend that statement to we say the top four or five? But right now, I feel like the top ten is remarkable. Yeah, it it is. I mean, I was going through all the eight players this year that were in Turin, and also the alternate in Harkac, and I was just like, are any of these players not going to be here next year, barring a serious injury? Like. It's very tough to imagine that, you know, at least seven of them were going to be there, six or seven again, and so it's it's the yeah. Now we didn't talk about we didn't talk about UB, but think about him, Bunch. I mean, he yeah, he was a bit unlucky not to make the cut. He was a bit unlucky that Sitsipas didn't pull out sooner, so he kind of came into the tournament. Suddenly, he's out there against Novak, and he took a set. But leave aside that what happened in Turin, 
I feel like watching him this year lost a couple of heartbreakers to Carlos over the summer. Had match point in one in the second one. He's that serve is one of the most devastating weapons in the game. To me, he's he's one of the two or three best servers in tennis, and that makes him so dangerous. You think of the match he played against Djokovic on the center court at Wimbledon. I mean, it, it was unbelievable the way he served for two sets, and Djokovic found a way to squeeze out a couple of tie breaks and eventually win it four sets the next day. But Hercosh, I think of the scare he gave Novak there, the scares he gave Carlos over the summer, some of the other matches he plays where he takes the racket out of your hands. And he moves so well for his size. He's better off the ground than you expect him to be. The forehand, he steers it at times. You feel like he he doesn't commit at times. And when he and when that happens, he you know he can be very vulnerable off that side. So that is a that is a weakness, but a very good two hander, good, really good movement and agility for his size, and and definitely one of the best serves in the sport. So I expect Hubie to do. I, I, I could see maybe even a slightly better year for him next year. Yeah. I mean, I mean, essentially, the last three years, he's kind of ended up in the same spot, but just different routes yeah. to get there. And it's been true. And, and you, you know, you kind of feel like he, he's kind of reliable to do that again, if not do even better. So it's, it's, uh, and, and I think also the slams, the hardcore performances at the slams will get better eventually as well, just because, you know, he's been able to do it so much in, in Miami and Shanghai and all these other Masters events. And, on any given day, beat off, beat one of these top players, and and win them. So, well, that was a great match with Rublev that you alluded to earlier, and he, that he managed to pull out. And yeah, Hubie played some great tennis in this in the latter stages of the season. And no, I, I I like his prospects for next year, and I feel like you know nobody nobody enjoys playing him. You know, you hope you hope he's going to have a bad serving day. You just you're kind of praying that he will because. He can blitz through those service games, and and uh, no, I, I I I see a possible top ten. You know, I can see him again. It's a big crowd that we've been discussing, and a lot of guys competing for those slots. But I could see Hubie ending up next year seven eight in the world himself. Mm-hmm. And I also just have to say, just more of a general comment on the rest of the landscape that it feels like because of these two week Masters events, and also because of several players. You know, bringing a level where they're just unplayable on a given day. You think of play- people like Roman Safiul and Aslan Karatsev, Christopher yeah. Eubanks, what he did over the summer, and you know, many, many other Raj, like Raj, doing Raj, Raj, Raj. Do me a favor before you speed past Eubanks. Yeah, to me, that was one of the the ch- chief disappointments of the year in the sense that he had that great run on the grass and the one and almost could have beaten Medvedev at Wimbledon. And he set himself up. He put it. He got his ranking up in the seeding territory at the majors. And I just felt like he was going to have better results. I didn't expect that that meant he was now going to skyrocket into the top ten in no time flat. But I did expect a higher standard from him in in the second half of the year that we just didn't see. That he just couldn't find. Were you were you as disappointed as I was by what happened to him? Over the course of the, you know, over the final months of the season, that he didn't get more out of himself, he seemed to lose that belief. Now I know that fast courts suit him better. I get it, but I, I felt like on, you know, maybe grass is is his best surface, but I think he could have done quite a bit better on the hard courts. And somehow he leveled off again and didn't, to me, did not take advantage of the, the scintillating surge that he made over in Great Britain and and the. 
excitement that he brought to you know to to all the observers of American tennis that maybe he would be one of our guys to watch not too and he may yet be but I didn't like I didn't like the way he performed in uh Pumps Wimbledon at all yeah that's interesting I didn't actually get the feeling after watching him at Wimbledon that this was necessarily gonna be a springboard to like a really good finish to the end of the season I kind of looked at it more as like you know he's he, he's gonna like if next year if he stays in the top 50 I think that'll be a win like just because I wasn't expecting him to like propel him into into uh, like doing that week after week because it was one really good week before Wimbledon and it was right and then and remember, right yeah yeah but I think like the margin in his game isn't isn't quite enough where it's like I wouldn't expect him to replicate that over and over um, not nece- I wouldn't necessarily either but I mean I also didn't expect that he would struggle just to win matches and mm-hmm. and I felt I think like- he was a little un- unfortunate to get ill at the U.S. Open as well I don't think he was yeah physically true. right in that match um, yeah that's true that didn't help. That didn't help at all. Urkash got hurt ill at the open as well. I I I just mean that he's got a great serve. He's a great athlete. Yeah. Very flashy off the ground. You know, he can take your rhythm away. And I just feel like I just felt like we were gonna see him maybe move from the low thirties up into the low twenties. Not not you know, not kind of a Okay, yeah, I see. Third. But we didn't get that at all. So I think it's gonna be important for him to establish himself again, you know, between Melbourne and Miami in that period of the year next year. I I hope that he'll be able to record some really good results. And, and not and that not necessarily going to come every week. He's not that kind of a player. Yeah. But he should be able to strike it hot and get hot enough to, you know, to do more damage than he did. That's all I'm saying. And okay, yeah, I, I see. I, I see. Feeling guy, feeling guy and an appealing player because he's very different. Yeah. My, my, more uh, committed to attacking it, and obviously that makes him vulnerable. And other, he is vulnerable in other areas. The ground game is is very streaky. But boy, what, when he's attacking well as he did on the grass, I think he could transfer that better than he did to hard courts. Yeah, I, I actually I, I tend to agree with that too. I think he could he could strike that maybe in maybe in Australia where he's close to that seating range and yeah. can get hot there. And courts have been playing a little quicker there as well. And you know, like for instance, there's no reason why he can't do what he did in Miami and do it somewhere else. Right, that's just, right. You know, on a, on a different surface. I don't expect much from him on the clay season or anything like that. No, it's no, just, no. But yeah, you know, no. but yeah, he is one of those players that can strike it hard, like Karatsev, for instance. And, yeah. You know, get on or get on a roll in some of these big weeks and just captivate the audience with his brilliant play. And he's such a good analyst of the game as well. You just really want him to succeed and do well. Oh, you do. No, he's a very likable guy. He's terrific on the air and. And I, and it'll it'll be it'll be fun to watch him. Hopefully, you know he can he can kind of clear his head in the off season and gear himself up for the Australian. And and that that could be that what happens over there could end up being you know pivotal pivotal to his entire twenty twenty four campaign. Yeah. Plus, all of this is just so new for him. You know, being getting out of the rut that he was in with the challengers and. Is it, you know, even deciding at one point that do I really want to keep doing this? You know, I'm stuck in the 150 to 200 range, and then, right, and then right. you know, it his whole life really just changed. So I think uh, maybe some of this was just getting used to that status in the game, and hopefully now we'll see him take that to the next level and build on it. I hope so, because you know the guy's a tiebreaker away from being in the semifinals of Wimbledon. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that was an incredible run he had over there, and uh, yeah. the fans loved him. And, 
Yeah, I think he. I think he's a very upstanding young man as well. I, I think we're not. We're that's not an actor we're listening to on the air. That that's him. Yeah, and I'm, and he's calling some of the matches this week as well in the next gen final, and he keeps doing it from time to time. And I think yeah. that's one. He's very cerebral that way, and I think it really helps his tennis. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that can translate to more on court success. But before I let you go, Steve, do you have a bold prediction for twenty twenty four? That uh, bold. Yeah. I, I need I, I need you to set that up a little differently. No, I mean now here's what here's what I would say, Bond. I just think it's not bold to say. I think Sinner gets on the board with a major next year somewhere along the line. Uh, uh-huh. I, I he can threaten anywhere. He's, he's he's not he's probably underrated on clay, but that's not where I would expect it. I would expect it to be at one of the other three. And I, I I'm seeing I'm I'm envisioning two majors for Djokovic as we discussed earlier. And Carlos get gets another himself. He strikes it out at the right time. That the big three divide the four biggest prizes in the sport among them, with two going to Djokovic and one going to 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 Alcaraz, one to Sinner. But with Sinner, I'm betting now. He this end of next year, he's ranked ahead of Carlos. That's my guess right now. Hmm. Yeah, that's a the, that's a decent pick. I was going to say that Sinner was going to win the U.S. Open or something. That was going to be mine, but I could be. It's, it's not the, really that. The U.S. Open is is could be ideal for him, absolutely. Particularly if you, you know, and in, in the if you look at say if Djokovic has worked hard and let's say Djokovic has won Wimbledon and tried going back and got the Olympics or at least put himself in a position to win the Olympics, it'd be very hard for him to turn it around as we discussed earlier and be at peak form emotionally, physically, mentally for the for the open. But maybe it's worked out differently for Sinner, depending on his results at those events. But yeah, I would say he'll be very dangerous at the open. You know, he'll be dangerous at Wimbledon and Australia as well. But I just I just get the feeling and I'm not expecting Carlos to collapse by any means. I think Carlos is going to have some great success next year too. And that's why I say there'll be a major for him along the way. But that I I think Sinner's results may end up being more consistent than Alcaraz's. And then, as far as where Djokovic and the rankings, it's hard to gauge. He, he, this year he did it beautifully in the sense of taking the seven titles and making the most of every opportunity and being in every major final and then winning Turin. You know, it's going to be hard to replicate that next year. But on the other hand, I think he's still going to be so driven and do so well in the majors that we can't say that he couldn't potentially get a night here at number one. Yeah, for sure, and then uh, and then I mean a wrinkle in all of this is also maybe a return of Rafa as well, and that you know and getting getting to play one warm up tournament before the Australian Open, you know his whole season will be prioritized based on trying to do his best and winning winning and run the Roland Garros, I would imagine, and then kind of leaving on a good terms uh, with with the game, and you hope it's not like Roger where he got hurt in the grass season, and you know you well, you want a good ending for him. But it's that's exactly what worries me, though. If you 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 put your finger on it. The danger is, I mean, Roger. It was all about the knee. Yeah, you know, we knew it was a specific area, and you knew what the, the you knew that's where he was vulnerable, and he had his surgeries, and you know, could, would the knee ever allow him to perform at peak efficiency ever again? And it didn't, and he wisely decided enough was enough. Rafa's got such a litany of injuries, and you just worry about the ribs and the feet and and. Yeah, the, the knees haven't been bad for a long time, but there's so many problem areas for him. And what worries me is when you, you're out of the game for a year like that, practicing is never the same. 
but I admire him. He's going to give it a shot. And where I trust him is I think he'll be very wise, Botch, about where he is with the level of his game and what's realistic now and how much he's willing to endure and put up with if if the results are not going well. He'll, he'll be patient up to a point. But then if, if another serious injury hinders him, if suddenly you know he suffers something serious again and the feet are really acting up or whatever it might be that's going to keep him out of the game for months on end, at that point I wonder whether he would want to then be thinking about mounting another comeback in 2025. So I, I just think he's, I think he's got a, he's got it under control. He's very realistic about what he, what to expect next year and not to expect too much, but you have to admire him for even attempting this right now, given what happened in, you know, that this year was a wipeout after the Australian Open. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be interesting to see, and we'll see how much he can lead the sport on his own terms and, you know, how, where he picks and chooses his spots. And But you know what, yeah. Baj? You, you said it, choosing his spots. And I hope that, you know, if he if it's clear that the level is not there and that he's losing to players that just shouldn't be on the court with him, that at, at a certain point, he, he, he won't allow that to happen anymore. On the other hand, if it's going well, all, all power to him, let's see. And he could give it, you know, he could make a serious bid to win a 15th Roland Garros. But that, of course... I still think it's a long shot because it, it over all the time lost that, you know, what's happened in the interim with Alcaraz cementing his status in so many ways, Sinner improving, Runa on the march. There's so many guys out there that he's going to have to tackle. Uh, and not that, not that it's impossible for him, but it, it will be asking a lot to put himself in a position to win another major. On the other hand, he's defied us. He, He's defined belief before, and he may do it again. Yeah, for sure. I remember reading one of your pieces, and you described him as indefatigable. So yeah. that was a brilliant description. He is that he is. He always has been, and he's got any, you know that he's got that immense heart and that willpower, and and uh, and then of course when you come back to a place where you've been almost invincible, if he's healthy at that point, that then it's another story. But you know, I think you'd probably agree, Vachi. Things going to need some building blocks along the way. Something good and encouraging happens in a Rome or a Monte Carlo, a couple of those places where he's at least goes deep into those draws and maybe wins one of those events. That that would put him in a position to believe that it was really possible in Paris again. Yeah, for sure. Well, on that note, Steve, I think I've kept you long enough, and it's good that we did this detailed breakdown of the entire 2023 ATP season and we covered a lot, pretty much all the top guys and. A lot of great topics. I think it will be very engaging for the listeners. And I really appreciate the time as always, Steve. Thank you, Vaj. Enjoyable. And look forward to our, our next discussion, which I hope is not too far off. Yeah, same here. Really enjoyed it, Steve. Thanks. Thank you. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 